So thanks so much for, for joining me, Nick. I've long been a fan of, of what you have accomplished and built at TechChange. And I, I want to start early on with your journey because like we talked a little bit earlier, your path has been super unique in my opinion. And, and I kind of want to start with the master's degree in peace education and then how that path goes to being sort of a tech social entrepreneur. So, so let's start there. Uh, Grant, great to be here. Excited to be uh, on the podcast and just a big fan of yours and, and the community you've curated over many years. So I did that peace education degree on the heels of a, of a modern poetry degree. So really, <laughs> I was doubling down on all things practical, uh, all things job ready and relevant. You know, that chapter was a really important one in my journey because I, I, I really took a leap of faith. I said, all right, I want to do this one-year master's in Costa Rica at this United Nations University for Peace, but I really want to study how education is working internationally. I want to understand this market beyond just the United States, and I had this tremendous experience working with 13 other educators from around the world as part of a community of 200 peacemakers, civil servants, entrepreneurs, really just incredible humans who were committed to social change. My mind expanded in so many ways being part of, of that graduate school experience. Just had a really hard time afterwards figuring out what a job actually looks like. When you do that, did you move then from Costa Rica or do you stay there for a while? Do you have sort of uh, the tech sort of ingredients in your body at, at that point? Are, are you sort of on the side, kind of just working in the tech field, maybe just developing skills there. How does the, the sort of tech side come into your life? Because that's obviously yeah. a pivotal sort of point. So it's interesting, Grant. I had actually studied some computer science in high school. I had uh, built websites early, late, late uh, in, in the 1990s, uh, did a <laughs> senior project for high school. So I'd had some tech. Interestingly, my, my father was responsible for helping bring uh, email servers and services to the White wow. House as his claim to fame. So we'd had it you know, obviously in the family had been a very tacky family. But coming out of that grad school experience, I came back to Washington, D.C. I started applying for jobs. I could not get a job anywhere. I was looking for things in peace and conflict studies, which is already a pretty sure. niche field. I was looking for just anything I could find in international development that became quite challenging. While I was doing that, I also decided, well, maybe I'll help the university that I just graduated from with their fundraising, student recruitment. So I started a little nonprofit for them on the side. And then I had to, lo and behold, build a website for them and actually think about the digital marketing and, and, and services that uh, uh, you know, could, could be used to support that effort. And, uh, and so as I was running that, I was learning a bit about the tech. And then I just started to team up with folks in Washington, D.C., other, other nerds who were really excited about the fact that 30% of the world had access to internet. 90% yeah. of people globally had some kind of access to a mobile device. And we started to look at some of these macro global trends and say, well, wait a minute, like what is the kind of tech for good angle? Mm -hmm. And yeah. sure enough, we started to, you know, in the year leading up to tech change, kind of the creation of tech change, we saw Arab Spring and social media being used to track human rights abuses. We saw digital maps being used yep. in Haiti to, to triage response. So already we were starting to collect these really powerful examples of technology, not just being used to make phone calls and, and connect to the internet, but to actually do something good for the world. Yeah. And it gave the, the one thing, and we'll kind of get into the origins of tech change and what that looked like in the beginning, because I remember it being the most incredible coursework 
that I had saw to date dealing with looking at interesting ways to use, you know, social impact, right? Because, you know, early 2000s or 2010s, I mean, there really wasn't anything at a university that was sort of looking at technology and what you said, sort of the advancement in the internet and, and putting that to social impact and bringing those together and figure out how can we take people who want to impact the world, but like technology and, and maybe want to even learn more about it because they see the impact of digital mapping of mobile payments uh, across Africa. And, and I remember looking at the courses and I actually took the, the mapping one uh, nice. and actually uh, went to Haiti. And then it was, so it was a very, I, I really just remember sort of, I was like, this is incredible, right? Like the, the, the teachers and the lecturers and people from around the world in, in the course, right? That was, which was so powerful before too. I was like, there's no way you could get this out of, out of university. But then I thought, I was like, why not? Why can't you get right. this out of Why university? Not? This Why is not? the type of stuff that I think students, especially coming out of high school or coming out of a master's degree, they, they, they need this sort of segue, right? Like for you, if you came out, it sounds like you probably would have took a tech, a tech change course because it, be would have right. hooked, it would have hooked you up with the people you could have went and worked for, right? Also, it's this sort of career path 100%. that it built out too. So just that's a long-winded way of saying thank you for for, for building what you did because it, it definitely inspired me and it impacted my life a bit and I'm sure it's impacted many more. But take oh, us back to, to starting the company and, and did you have to raise yeah. money? Did you have to get friends that, who were developers to help you build it? So just take us to the to the path of yeah. actually building the company. Yeah, so back to those that group of nerds, Grant. You know, yes. we, we kind of said, what what if we we kind of looked at the landscape and we said, no one's really applying the latest online learning technologies, pedagogies to to address this market of people who want to learn about tech for good and and, and want to build skills. And so we actually yeah. took hundreds of courses at that time. And so this was pre-Coursera. This was pre-edX. Right. This was the era of uh, Phoenix University. Mm -hmm. This was, you know, uh, really early days, but we, we really said, all right, to do this right, uh, we should really look at everything that's out there and try and build not just a, a model to deliver this great content, right? Whatever these case studies and, and, and examples of things like you mentioned, digital mapping, mobile payments, but also rethink the way that, that, that the content is delivered. And so to do that, we built our own uh, our own platform to do that, which was in hindsight, pretty crazy. Yeah, uh, it's so difficult to do, even now. We were, we were bootstrapped. We were absolutely yeah. bootstrapped. No one's going to fund a social enterprise uh, from, from a VC perspective. Uh, certainly had um, a little bit of savings that I used, but this was also height of the recession. And so mm -hmm. a lot of my colleagues, they also couldn't get jobs easily, right? So these early contributors to tech change were just really excited about this vision. Um, and, and kind of to, to tie in one more point that you mentioned, we were early days, we were really excited and kind of assumed that the market for our courses was going to be uh, grad students. We thought mm -hmm. people that would either instead of grad school or uh, in addition to grad school would be our primary market. We certainly did tap into that, but I, I, I can't say confidently 12 years later that we were profoundly wrong about that. <laughs> under, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, Grant, as these universities are going through this latest upheaval mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. uh, and as someone who teaches at Columbia and Georgetown as yeah. an adjunct, you know, I underestimated profoundly the power of these brands. And mm -hmm. I underestimated the power 
uh, that they have to endure their own models of delivery, which in my mind are, are pretty average. I don't mm-hmm. think that the educational experience at a lot, even the highest universities, yeah. uh, is that great. And I think we're seeing that play out uh, in real time. But just to say with those early days, we, we really said, okay, we've taken these courses now. We're going to build our own courses. We're going to build our own platform. We're going to start marketing and kind of see what happens. And, and that's what we did. And we, we launched three courses in 20, 2011. And um, I think the topics were mobile phones for international development, technology for international crisis response or something like that. And, uh, and then the third one was like, uh, 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 like innovations in, in global community building, kind of more like a social media yep. and governance angle. And, and it worked. We had, you know, we charged $250 a seat. We had probably 40 people sign up for each course. They were all a couple weeks long. And we had just this crazy sprint to then build the, the actual platform that I told my Still CTO, 10 years later, we're still working. Uh, Will, I said, Will, uh, we got to build this thing. You got three months, we got paying students, and uh, we've now proved the market. Now we got to build the, the delivery mechanism. So um, a, a kind of exciting time, Grant, but also just uh, a time that, you know, so atraditional in the kind of arc of how most kind of venture back companies deliver their products and services. But in hindsight, you know, honestly, it kept us very uh, attentive and responsive to our market. And, and I think that really made a huge difference in those early days. Back and to just, just to give an idea of what students joined, if you can give us an idea of just like how many students actually took the courses, and I think it was almost 200 countries, you know, people took these courses from. I just, uh, you know, when you kind of look back on it, that, that has to be uh, pretty gratifying. It's, it's incredible, Grant. I mean, in those early days, we also taught one of the first online courses in Sudan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we had Amazing. students from all over you know, places that, that, you know, and again, this is really one of the most gratifying things about this work is that hearing from students that they would never have had the opportunity to learn these things, the amount of effort that they would make individually to go and top up their data on their phones to log mm-hmm. into courses, right? Just incredible. Um, but it goes to show you that that uh, you know talent is is um, is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not right. That's mm-hmm. a, a kind of famous line. Uh, and uh, and and I just feel like you know trying to really unpack that that graduate school experience, the things I was teaching in my grad classes. Like, there's no reason why I couldn't take this to the world. And that, of course, was exactly what a lot of the MOOC uh, models were built on: this decentralization of access. Now, I personally feel like that was a bit of a failed experiment because the actual pedagogical approaches were underwhelming. But what it did do was what it did provide this platform of access. And we were early on in that. We were kind of three years before yeah. uh, the MOOC movement. So, you know, may, maybe, you know, to me, that's just exciting to think about democratization of education and, and our part in, in, in helping to encourage it. I remember y'all had a blockchain course years, yeah. be- years before it was... Cool, right? Here's before it was good Here's to know. Before Nick, Nick invested a, t- uh, a ton of money into Bitcoin in 2017, <laughs> lost a lot of money, made some money, you know, but then thought, why don't I teach a course on this? But yeah. really trying to to sort of separate the, you know, money-making crypto side with the potential of this technology for international yeah. development. And, uh, you know, look, I, I think there are a lot of people that are in our sector that are always resistant to some of these new technologies, machine learning, drones, and and, and blockchain, of course. But I think our, our position has always been, how do we convene communities? 
around learning objectives and actually stress test and really deepen our, our collective understanding about their real potentials. And we do that with case studies. We do that with tough conversations with experts. It's, it's a really practical and applied learning approach. And again, like that's just not that common. We're not that good at sharing and collaborating across the nonprofit sector. So for us, we're this kind of small but nimble uh, social enterprise that connects dots between huge organizations around learning. And, and it's, it's, it's important because so much there's so much competition in nonprofits because there's scarcity of resources. And, and, and we really are trying to kind of destabilize some of that and, and, and center the conversations around collaboration because we can't get these things addressed or solved without everybody working together, right? And I think we're feeling that pain extra um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an intense sense right now with this pandemic. I, I wanted to go back to, to something you referenced before about your side gig sort of being a professor, professor at a few different universities. <laughs> what is it like being in that environment now? Do, do the universities sort of tap your insight and in how they can sort of modernize their education platform? You know, and, and look at ways to obviously now that people are still paying, you know, 30 grand a year to take online classes at universities yeah. where it seems to be that that can't be sustainable. Right. Yeah. Um, has there been still to this day, has there still been any innovation in how they can make the traditional coursework or, or how people learn in colleges a little different where it's more than just, you know, paying 30 grand a year for just basically going to to get a social life, right? It seems like what it's to at this point. Oh, and, and, and a credential grant. grant. And that's, yeah, really, yeah. That, that's really where this comes down. And I think this is what it's become. These big universities are are, are minting credentials. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and look, there's some great professors doing amazing work across a lot of these schools. I think what's challenging is that institutionally, they have become victims of their own brand. They, mm -hmm. they don't mm -hmm. innovate because there is no incentive or pressure to innovate. You know, a lot of them are still using Blackboard, Moodle, and-, and So and, crazy, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's just, it's, it's, it's yeah, there's many reasons for this. Um, I think, again, there are many well-intentioned administrators, sure. but there are probably too much. The administration as a whole is too big. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the promise of online learning was so great and remain so great. And to see, I'm just so disappointed to see uh, New York Times article after New York Times article over the summer from various university presidents saying, we tried Zoom, it didn't work. Online learning is a failure. Mm -hmm. We need to get back to campus and spend, you know, tens of millions of dollars outfitting our campus for health protocols. And I'm just thinking like, you're blaming the medium, but you had 20 years to figure out how yeah, to exactly. think. Let's be honest, your business mm -hmm. model fundamentally um, goes against what online learning provides as far as potential, right? Harvard uh, and Columbia and some of these other schools that I've taught at have not increased their incoming classes for undergraduates, right? They've kind of kept those numbers around the same where I went to school, Swarthmore, you know, prides itself on the liberal arts education. Again, all great schools uh, in some respects, but not pushing the fringe of, of online learning and innovation. And it's a shame. You know, I, I really do think there, there's so much more we could be doing. Coursera had this kind of grand vision to, to take mm -hmm. a lot of the kind of aspects of, of the higher ed experience and democratize it. But schools were very nervous about having it cut into their, to their revenue streams. To you is another one that's sort of going program by program and sort of doing all the marketing and the enrollment and the course building. And, you know, there's some great courses out there that they're building online, but it's, it's you know, I think the, the quality is all over the map and I don't think we're anywhere near 
where we could be with, with the, the potential for online learning because of how schools have chosen to monetize this. It's a shame because not everybody's going to get to go to Harvard, you know, it's yeah, going to get yeah. more competitive. And, and, you know, we have to stop, I think, as a, as a consumer sector, we're so seduced by these brands. They've got us. They, these are the strongest well, brands in the world. On the flip side, though, uh, also the companies, I think, need to stop, get, you know, stop it on their end, giving their their energy and their hiring practices to those brands, right? For sure, that's Cause, huge. Because talent, like you said, it, it's about it's all about minting that that certificate, right? And and that is sort of the, the gateway to traditionally been the gateway, you know, to getting you know the, those jobs. So I, I think it's it's part it's partly on these companies to to look at their hiring practices and say, hey, we 100%. have to think outside the box too. And it's unfortunate, like you said, because they had such a massive head start yeah. because being brands and being institutions, they were trusted, right? They could have did this innovation and people, I think would have gave them a decade long to figure it out, right? Even invest money in it and figure, make the mistakes. Totally. And totally. then at this point you could have been, you know, it, I don't know. I, I just think there's a lot. I, I just think I look at as a par, as a weird parallel, looking at like uh, all the oil companies, Right. And it's like, you had 20 years to innovate and be, start looking at climate change and actually being a change and and innovating and investing. Now all these big funds and all these big investors are taking their money out of those and putting in these clean tech businesses. I'm like, Chevron and Exxon, you could have been the clean tech companies, right? It was like, it's such a missed opportunity. It's so unfortunate, you know. But they're they're, going to be fine, Grant. That's the crazy thing is that, you know, give every market indicator I can see is that the, the, the schools that are in trouble are the second tier of course right. uh, schools, the state schools, you know, yeah. I'm personally very excited about the community college uh, online learning vector and that, mm. that ability to, to provide really high quality online learning. But I mean, the good news, the silver lining here is that I think we have advanced or accelerated probably about a decade worth of online learning innovation in the past 10 months. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the schools that figure this out and that, and that, and that, and that are able to adapt and absorb um, that acceleration curve are going to do awesome. And the ones that aren't are, are probably not going to make it. Uh, the brands, unfortunately, are going to learn all the wrong lessons from this, most likely, and continue <laughs> to be fine. And that's, you know, I think we all have to just operate in the shadow of, of that reality. But there's just a ton of innovation still to be had. And, you know, we might see Google and, 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 mm. and Facebook and others start universities, right? I think that, you know, getting back to your totally hiring, possible. you know, I think a lot of hiring managers are totally seduced with hiring people who had the same journey they did. Mm. And they all went to good schools, but they have, you know, fundamentally misread or, or refused to accept the reality that now it is a lot harder to pay for those schools, it's yeah. a lot harder to go to those schools, and that there are many talented people who have non-traditional paths. So it's a good lots to, lots to think about there. It's a good segue into what tech change is now, right? Yeah. It's sort of been, you know, through your social entrepreneurship journey. I wouldn't say it was a it's a it's a it's a major major like pivot or segue, but I think you looked at the market and again you were early on, just like your coursework, just like everything you've done, you were so early on into looking at the landscape of of where things were going and started producing these events and producing this coursework, producing this platform for others, essentially, you know, white labeling the tech change platform in, in a way. Which is so smart. Uh, so take us take us up to date now. What tech change is and why you saw the reason to make that shift. 
Grant, it's a great question. We, we probably around 2015, 2016, noticed that we were hitting some natural ceilings with our B2C, our business to consumer products. Those were the courses. Mm-hmm. We launched this diploma program. So we were trying to figure out, could we string together courses, raise the price point, even offer an alternative grad degree? Yeah. And we were really excited about that. We, we had $1,000 for an, uh, a diploma program for three courses, kind of a semester long experience and a $5,000 a semester kind of more involved alternative graduate degree experience. And we, we sold it. I mean, we probably sold uh, around hundred, 150 seats in the, in the thousand dollar one and the, and five or six in the alternative grad mm-hmm. school. And I, mm-hmm. I think, I think we were so early with that market that yeah. we maybe you know, we maybe learned some of the wrong lessons, but we started to, obviously with, with those numbers, that's not enough to really sustain um, a business line. And so we said, meanwhile, there were tons of organizations in the social sector coming to us saying, hey, you know what, we kind of need help (laughs) taking our content online. What can you do? So in those early days, we were building a lot and some of the standard e-learning tools, building slide-based courses, really stunning ones, like almost like watching a documentary or a movie, but going Mm -hmm. through a slide, you know, Mm -hmm. getting like experience, really stunning. We hired graphics teams and motion animators. Um, it, you know, they, they were beautiful courses. They were not great. It was not a great business because yeah. it was very complicated to produce these, yeah. this software we were using, you know, if one thing is wrong in any one of yeah. these hundred slides, you gotta go back and change it. And maintain yeah. it. So we, then we sort of said, all right, well, let's white label our platform. And that's actually use the platform as the organizing principle for, for building courses. And that really changed a lot. It, it basically opened us up to, to all kinds of business lines, doing workshops and synchronous learning more than just self-paced courses. So mm-hmm. most organizations early days were coming to us say, Hey, can you take this compliance course? And can you, you know, turn it into a, a slide-based course? Then they started saying, wait a minute, we could actually train audiences in the field with this yeah. tech change offer as part of a capacity building project. So suddenly, well, light bulbs going off. And then uh, we started to just do a lot more USAID work. We started to kind of find a niche in, in, in the last two or three years in public health. Mm. And it is kind of funny that even before the pandemic, they were, we were being asked to kind of come full circle and do a lot more in-person training. And so I was flying around the world building highly interactive in-person workshops being like, what am I doing? <laughs> and and, you know, it's, it's interesting, Grant, like even even up until last, uh, I will say kind of a year ago, because we're kind of still pre-pandemic yeah. here a year ago, I was I was still traveling. I was I was thinking to myself, this sector is just not going to get it. They're not, mm. you know, like I, I have a nice amount of work, you know, I can. But but to like continue to maintain the, 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 the product, the platform itself to mm-hmm. white label it tech team it's very expensive very expensive um i'm still bootstrapped i've got just was feeling like the model couldn't work because people were just not that receptive people everybody in this sector wants to be in person with their training so badly for all mm-hmm. kinds of reasons per diems international development and we love traveling right sure. going getting on planes and doing stuff but then the pandemic just changed everything yeah and i'll stop yeah. there and i'll let you reflect on that <laughs> yeah no i i mean it, it's it's kind of where i was going unfortunately and and i think it's you know obviously there's 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 so much uh displacement i think economically and mentally as well and i don't think we we sort of see 
the effects of, of mental health that's going to come after this. I do think that is a, uh, that could be something that has been sort of really un- unforeseen. And just like the pandemic is harming bodies physically, I, I think it's going to do similar effects to, to our mental capacity in, in some areas of the world. So, but with that said, you know, you, you kind of get the shift in mentality, right? The shift in how do you think about your organization? How do you think about your business? How do they still survive, right? I guess how, when, when that happens, right? And you sort of, I guess the maybe March, 2020, you know, March, April, May, that time, does that when things start to get a little crazy where people start to call and be like, hey, we need to like ramp up everything because this is our entire company now. Is that, <laughs> you know, are dependent on tech change now building this like in rapid time, right? I'm sure everything needed to be done next day, right? So I guess what was those, early stages of the pandemic, like being a, a tech company, right? When everybody is, is flocking to sort of online and virtual at that point. Yeah, so so many emotions and feelings there. And I'll, I'll maybe just start this answer with a quote from a, a professor, a colleague of mine who teaches at Harvard and who's also involved in online learning efforts. Uh, you know, and he said to me, probably sometime in mid 2019, he said, you know, Nick, you got a great business. You got a, an interesting model. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is survive long enough to take advantage of the next mm. big wave of ed tech innovation. Someone mm-hmm. is going to figure this model out mm-hmm. in a big way, but there are going to be tons of winners uh, in this sector. And, you know, wow, I think he was thinking we were on kind of a five, 10 year journey. And frankly, we probably were. And I'd already yeah. been on a five, 10 year journey. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, but so prescient, right? So be able to say that, like, look, this is an inevitable tide. We are going to have to figure out online learning. There are too many people to educate. People are too distributed. Um, the power of the internet and the democratization of information um, is too important to trend to ignore. Mm-hmm. And, and in a sense, like with the pandemic, it just it catalyzed and accelerated that reality. In the early days, uh, um, amazingly, I was actually quite sick and I thought I might actually have COVID this time mm-hmm. last year. And I was you know, bedridden, it turned out to be just the flu freaked out, scared, terrified, mm. in a small bedroom with my, my, my uh, newly, uh, newly married wife and, and just like hating life. Yeah. Um, but as I started to, to kind of recover from that and, and realize just what this meant, I had, I had clients, you know, in those early days, just kind of started, they started to cancel trips. We were supposed to go to Sierra Leone mm-hmm. as, a, as an organization and do a training for the Ministry of Health. And that wow. was canceled at the last minute. Uh, I had probably six or seven international trips that one by one started to be canceled. And slowly the clients started to ask, well, what can we do here? And I kept saying, well, you know, we are an online learning company first and <laughs> foremost, we can take this online. But even then, I, you know, I think for us, it was a pretty, it was, a, it, it pushed us, right? Because we had to sort of say, we're going to take, we're going to take a Zoom playbook, we're going to marry it with our platform. Um, we're going to really think about how to design and use some of these whiteboard tools that are out there, marrying our tech, our experience mm-hmm. with um, really having to go fully synchronous. And there was, I think, in March, an opportunity for us to take a workshop with PEPFAR, which is the largest public health program in the world. We were going to do this workshop in person for them in D.C. And um, my colleague, who's very senior at, at PEPFAR, was kind of like, Nick, what, you know, what can we do here? Mm-hmm. And I said, Mark, we should do this entirely online. Like, don't cancel it. Let me, let's do a, a day and a half, six hours, four hours. We'll design a, a, an agenda and we'll do this whole thing online. And, and trust me, I can mm-hmm. pull this off. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
and we we did and it was amazing and we had sort of very senior people and of course pepfar working on covid stuff as well sure. uh, days and deborah burks was you know obviously dr burks was in, in, in charge of pepfar but our little workshop made it to the highest echelons of, of this program saying this is this is the future <laughs> uh and, and sure enough kind of client by client started to started to call up and say, we need to take this online. We need to take this online. And we said, okay. And we worked with our existing clients, started to sort of phone start ringing for other, other engagements. Um, but granted, it was really the online events um, business line that we, we started mm -hmm. that really changed things. And I'm so, happy to talk. About yeah. That. Explain, explain what that is. Cause I think, I think we can, we can say online event and to, you can ask a hundred people what that means and what that looks like. And you probably get a different opinion, right? <laughs> it's that, it's that sort of unique to everybody and their sort of experience. So how did you try to make that not necessarily different, but just, you know, worth it for people, right. To attend, because I think we've all sort of attended an online thing and it, it, it's sort of never what we think it's going to be, or, you know, it's just clunky and somebody's Wi-Fi doesn't work. Right. And, all these people are in video or the audio doesn't work. There's a lot of bumps in the road, a lot of hurdles that totally. could happen. Totally. Right? And, and I think what was so great about your organization, your company is that you were ready for the moment that you always thought would come or wanted to come, right? And, and when that moment came, you guys were prepared, right? You're like, this is what we've been waiting for for the last 10 years, right? 10 years, Grant. And I think, I know, and I, and I think sometimes... Yeah people and, and founders and, and they want something to happen. They see the moment where it's going to happen and then it does happen and they're not ready for it. And then they can't complete what their clients want. And then they just go to a competitor. Right. And then you're, you're done. Right. And it's, it's so quick how it could happen. Right. So I just thought it was just a, it's a great just moment where I just want to reiterate the point you made is that it, it's be prepared that those years that are, it's not happening for you. Like, but if you put in the time, put in the effort to where when that time comes that you always thought would come, if you're prepared, then it's game over, right? Then you have a company for the next hundred years. Sorry about that long-winded. No, no, I it's, just wanted to touch on that a little bit, though. It, you know, in hindsight, it looks like a genius thing. Uh, I, I, I can tell you there was so much anxiety, so much fear, so much uncertainty wrapped up in that survival. There was mm -hmm. so much that we, you know, I had to continue to tell myself this was worth it. And I had to, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting a tech team. I'm, I'm building, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I've got, you know, 10, 15 staff. It's not just me. Right. So I, I am that, that anxiety, uh, is tremendous. There were times, you know, I took myself off payroll over mm. the years when things didn't work, when we, you know, clients and projects, uh, weren't on, on time. So, you know, I, I look back and I'm like, man, that was nuts. But I also, I think, again, I think it's an entrepreneur for me. I, I had to do this, right. Something deep in my bones said, I, I want to, I want to have the impact I want to have on the world is one where I have a team of people and I'm helping to, you know, Im implement a vision, but I'm really sharing that, that seat at the table with the team that I trust to, to help take me there. And if, if I look back, you know, in those early days of the pandemic, I, I pushed hard, but really they rose to the challenge to my team. They, yeah. they, they, and I, you know, I guess you could say, you know, we hired, we hired some great people for sure. And, and, and I'm, but, but wow, did they step up? And I think that was part due to the fact that they really, you know, everyone was was scared and obviously still is, but the issues and the topics and the communities we were working with needed us. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, 
really a lot of this centered around this first conference that we ran, uh, online conference for, called the Global Digital Development Forum. And we basically sometime around mid-March, end of March, you know, I got a call from a colleague and, and he'd said, Nick, every technology and development conference has been canceled. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. What, you know, can we, and he'd been involved obviously in, in, in planning conferences in the past and worked together on a number of things. So can we, and can tech change step up here and can we pull together in some crazy timeline, like five, six weeks, an online conference for the community because people are scared, people are suffering, people are, are have no platform to exchange and collaborate. Right. And again, up until this point, remember, we had been an online learning and training company that did some of this, but to, to do it in the context of a conference right. um, with, you know, 300 sessions, keynotes, production Crazy. plus, you know, so, so this was all a stretch. And, and, and this was really where my team rose to the challenge. We, we looked at, we looked at this and they said, we said, you know, it's possible, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's going to be a, a Herculean uh, sprint to, to pull this off. And, and they did, I mean, we built, we built an agenda page and a service that sort of really tied together the different sessions. We, we found a, pr a producer, um, you know, to help us use kind of this higher end broadcast software that is used to you know, produce keynotes. We uh, trained our staff and how to manage and moderate sessions. We got a ton of volunteers in the mix. We had this amazing co-organizing committee with organizations like Save the Children, UN Foundation Dial, um, Chemonix, uh, IntraHealth. Wow. Uh, so we had just a phenomenal group and then, and then, you know, getting to that May, May 5th event was just magical. Like we did it, we pulled it off. Everything kind of worked, you know, sure. but it worked <laughs> so much better than anything else. Right. We weren't just yeah. doing a Zoom conference. We were really on our platform. We built a 3d environment. We had, uh, and this really cool software called Mozilla hubs. We were, you know, delivering all these cool workshops. We had figured out how to do the live streaming. We had people on our platform kind of connecting and exchanging point system for tracking mm. you know, people's progress. So, you know, it was so far beyond what anybody else was doing at that point. And I still believe it is because we've kept up that I think the feedback from that was so incredible. And the referrals from that were so abundant. I, I am going to imagine. That, yeah. You know, yeah. Everybody at that point, uh, Grant, the, the phone was really ringing off the hook. <laughs> and the one thing that is really interesting is that you've kind of become, because it's not just providing the software, right? Which is what most companies do. They say, hey, here's beautiful software. You can run your event. Well, it's one thing to just have the software, right? But then you gotta know how to use it, right? Then you gotta build the agenda, right? Then you gotta, it, it's no different than a physical event, right? It's just, there's an added layer on top of, of like having the technology, which in a lot of times can make things easier, but sometimes it can make things harder for a little bit. Oh yeah. So you understand how to use it. Oh yeah. But oh, you yeah. guys kind of do everything, right? And it's, you are essentially an event organizer and facilitator. And I think that's sort of the, the difference in why I think this model has so potential because it's like, here's what we want to do. Right. You become the production staff essentially, right? And the organize, that is- That's uh, exactly it. So crazy. Yeah. It's, it, it's a ton of work, Graham, but you know yeah. what, what we found is that there, there are a lot of clients, especially in, in the social sector, that, that are not really able to or excited sure. about downloading a, a, an off-the-shelf uh, software and sort of running with this, this enormous amount of work. There's a lot of uncertainty about how to actually pull these off. Definitely. Um, 
and I think the you know the other thing about you know yes we do this kind of platform plus production plus support uh, for our model, but we're also just integrating with all kinds of other cool technologies. A lot mm -hmm. of times when you go with one yep. of these software companies, you're kind of in their ecosystem and you're at the mercy of whatever you know, and they're they're fine. They've got to get you what you need, but you know for the real innovation and we feel for the real kind of networking and and kind of collaboration to happen, we got to be able to pull in some of the best tech that's that some of that's ours, but some of that's others. Yep. And and try stuff out and integrate. And, yep. and, um, and that's, that's hard to do if you're just, you know, a, an event planner who's used to doing stuff. hundred percent. There's a, so much tech in, involved in that piece. So I think that value proposition was really strong and that product market fit continues to be one of the best we've seen in our 10 year journey is just people needing this full, full service experience to pull off their online events. Um, and the last thing I'll say here, Grant, is it, you know, I'm really interested to see where this market goes, but I'll tell you, yeah. like, for our sector, we've had conferences where 60, 70% of people have come from Global South. And wow. I don't know how this sector goes back to a 5% participation from low to middle income countries in Global South when that conference is in DC or New sure. York or, sure. or California. So to me, this inclusion narrative is incredible. The carbon you know, narrative is incredible. Yeah. We're not traveling cost savings, you know, accessibility. There's just so much here that I think we can't just, I mean, yes, we're hungry to see each other again, but maybe there's a model that's, that's hybrid that we're, you know, excited about. That too. was, but, that was my next question was this time next year, right? Is the client base still there, right? You think it's still, it's still as, as sort of hot and in demand as it is now. I agree with you. I think that there is a hybrid model that is 70% more online and just 30% like physical or something like that, where I think it's here to stay, but love to get your thoughts on, because obviously you're in it every day and you, you hear, yeah. you know, sentiments from, from clients and, and conferences in general, what, what do they say sort of long-term? Well, a couple of trends I'm excited about. I, I, I do think, you know, our model has always been taking the learning and training secret sauce that we've had for 10 years and really bringing that to, to the conference and, and convening experience. And I think that that spectrum or that convergence of, of, of a conference as a learning and training experience is, is really exciting to me. I think that's really what we need to be driving at. How that works in terms of format, I think will take all types of shapes and sizes. I've had certainly a lot of clients tell me even if they could go back to in-person, they love this format. So, mm -hmm. so that's really exciting. I think there are others who are eager to get back in person for some things. I'm personally quite excited about the possibility of what I'm calling the flipped conference model, hmm. where we use the in-person experience to really be highly interactive, highly mm -hmm. engaging, focused on things like networking and community building and working groups, and then the production and the speakers and a lot of the stuff that we, we can do more flexibly can then be taken online. I think those kind of local, I think we'll see more kind of local meetups and regional convenings that feed into some kind of global virtual experience. I think that will become more common. You know, again, I think a lot of people that go to conferences like to hang out in the hallways. They like to meet other people. <laughs> they like to go to, to generate leads. Seeing, seeing a famous person up on the stage is kind of, it's nice, but it's maybe not the, the biggest draw. So mm -hmm. we we are working very hard to recreate that hallway experience online. I think we have some really exciting models for that. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, again, I think this kind of regional hub model may be how hybrid settles um, 
But again, we've got some very cool production ideas as well. There's lots of things we can do with green screens and, and virtual setups. This tech's only going to get better. So yep. I, I think we'll, I think we will be uh, certainly ha having virtual conferencing as part of our lives going forward, but it's going to have to get better and better. It can't, it can't suck. Yeah, and, no doubt. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it can't just happen on Zoom. Like, I really believe that. Like, I think Zoom has been an, an incredible mm -hmm. tool to convene just just historic proportions that they've had in our in our lives this past year but with anything there's fatigue there's a frustration sure. that doing it too much and i think that kind of craving of newness and connection will likely be facilitated by other technologies and models or at the very least will be kind of in addition to um what zoom brings to the table amazing well i'm going to end it there like Thank you again so much. This uh, it's been a decade in the making. Really, it feels like. <laughs> well, not a decade. I started two thousand thirteen was Cause Artists, and you guys were a little before that. But uh, you know, I remember so early on, man, uh, seeing it and being inspired. So I'm I'm so glad that it looks like you you know vision became a reality in a lot of different ways. And like I said, I can't wait for the the next decade. I think there's going to be so many interesting things that uh, that hard work and resilience is is, is paying off, and I just I think there's just so much innovation still left in the sort of the tech impact space. I think we're still so early on that, uh, you know, hope to have you back on maybe, maybe next year or something and, and see where things are at. But uh, again, thank you for what you built and, and being resilient and uh, best of luck the rest of this year and, and many more years after that, my man. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, Grant. And uh, really, really appreciate it. A lot of work to be done. So, you know, no rest over here for us, but, uh, but, uh, again, thank you for all you do for the community and highlighting so many incredible social entrepreneurs. And congrats on your eight-year run. That's that's pretty epic too. So uh, good good to good to be here.